Good morning, everyone. Um, a very warm welcome to you all here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be able to gather together in this way. Um, a special welcome to those who may be new among us. You're especially welcome. Uh, we follow the morning service with uh, refreshments in, through those doors and in uh, what we call the main hall um, through there. And uh, toilets and, and stuff are also through there. So you're, you're especially welcome. Um, also to say uh, today's uh, service uh, is being live streamed. So special welcome to anyone who may be watching us uh, live or watching us later on on, on catch-up. Um, so it's, it's good to be able to do that. And if you want to hear all this again, you're allowed to watch it again on, online. So, As our call to worship this morning, some words from Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. He who is the maker of heaven and earth. So we come and we gather together in God's presence and in order to praise and worship our God. We come just as we are with the kind of weeks that we may have had, or whatever they've been like, we can come no other way. And our desire is to encounter God, is to meet with him here today. And so we worship him, we give of ourselves, and as we do so, by faith. Uh, making that effort to praise and to give thanks to him, though it may not be easy, he meets with us and ministers to us. So let us pray as uh, we begin and before we sing the first of our songs. So we ask, living God, we thank you that you are a God who is knowable, uh, a God who can be experienced, a God who comes close, a God who speaks, a God who ministers to us, wherever we are, and whatever we've done. And we bless you and thank you and worship you, and ask that you would be here present by your Spirit, moving among us, touching and transforming our hearts and our lives, that we may draw close to you, and that we may serve you, the living God, in all the ways that you call us. We ask this and we give you thanks and praise in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to sing a, a couple of songs together. Please feel free to stand, to sit, to lift up your, your hands, to dance, to sway. Whatever you uh, feel um, able to do and want to do in order to express your worship to God. And we're going to sing these uh, songs one after the other, uh, beginning with strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. 
mind standing and, and let's pray. Our God, we want to thank you and praise you. Indeed, our declaration is, Hosanna, save us. We declare your praises. We give thanks to you from our hearts. We come just as we are. And we bring to you our very lives. And we ask that you would have your way with each one of us and among us as a congregation today and as a fellowship, your church. Walk with us, our living God. Draw us close. Minister to each one here. And bless us. We're going to continue with uh, our next song, My Jesus, My Saviour. Uh, feel free to either remain standing or to sit. But during this song, uh, those who are going to go out to Brighton Road Baptist Kids Club are going to go from us. Um, so you'll be following Tim and the team um, through those doors. Um, so uh, we'll do that during the singing of this song, My Jesus, My Saviour.
him together all people that on earth do dwell. Let's uh, lift up our cheerful voices to him uh, that we may serve him in our days. Again, feel free to to stand or to sit uh, as you wish. Take your seats and we're going to continue in prayer. Let us pray. Today we gather in worship of you, O God, amidst a nation in mourning. Again, we express how we grieve the loss of our Queen Elizabeth. Yet we celebrate her example, not because of the office of state that she held, 
with the person that she was. We remember a life of dutiful service, inspired by the example of our servant King, Jesus. And here today, right now, here in this place, we commit ourselves afresh to the purposes of his gospel. We recall those occasions when Queen Elizabeth spoke unashamedly of the faith she held dear. And we seek your help to live our lives that declare our own faith with equal clarity in word and in deed. We recognise in these moments and in these momentous days that no high office can protect us from our own mortality. We give you thanks, God, for the gift and promise of eternal life, placed within our grasp through the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. We acknowledge the pain of loss, and we hold in our hearts and prayers our King, Charles III, our royal family, and all whose sense of grief and sadness in personal ways will be reawakened by Elizabeth's passing. And we give thanks that her enduring presence in our lives was but a pointer to the eternal presence of our God, whose rule and reign will never end, and who invites all of humanity, each one of us, to find our place within that everlasting kingdom. And so, our God, we bring before you our needs as we ask. Lord, where there is need for forgiveness, forgiveness of our sin, our rebellion, wash us clean. Where there is need of forgiveness on our part towards others, help us. We let others go. Where there are needs that are practical, that may feel insurmountable. We pray, Father, that you would meet each and every need. We ask, Lord, that we may be those who help others meet their needs as we give to them. Father, where there are needs in our own lives of your help, where we are not well, in whatever way, we ask for your healing hand to be upon us. Give us the wholeness that we need. And we pray, Father, where we are to bring healing to others, consolation and comfort, strengthening, encouragement, Enable us to do so, 
thank you that you are at work in our world. We thank you for your ability to use each one of us to bring about change, lasting change, in the world around us and in the lives around us. Help us, we pray. May we live lives not selfishly but selflessly for you. We pray for our wider community and our nation at this time. And we ask, Lord, that you may be ministering in difficult days, in times of hardship, in times of grief. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice. May we not be those who are ignorant or ignoring what you have to say. Turn us back to you where we have gone astray. Have mercy, we pray, upon us. And Lord, in these days where there are special occasions, national, local, special arrangements, in light of our Queen's passing, may you be speaking volumes through your word, through your servant. Awaken us, Lord, we pray. Shake us awake. We desire to hear your voice. We desire to know your presence and your way before us. And Lord, as we come to your word here this morning, we pray that you would speak afresh to us. Help us to hear, to understand, and to be able to act upon what you're saying to us in these days. And help us in these days, Lord, to um, spend time with you. Those quiet times where we are alone with you, where we shut the door of our room. We listen to your voice in prayer, the reading of your word. Help us to discern you and your ways in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're coming to our Bible reading today, and this is found in Luke chapter 16. This is uh, where Jesus tells a parable, one of the, I'd say, more tricky parables that he tells. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. 
the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as I speak that you would use uh, my words to convey your truth and lead us in your ways. So today, as I said, we're focusing on one of Jesus' parables. He begins with introducing us to a rich man, but his focus is not upon the rich man, it's upon his manager. And at the outset, this manager seems to be painted in not a good light. He's a manager who is under accusation. The manager was accused of wasting the rich man's possessions. I suggest the first important question that we are to ask is, is he being rightfully accused? Perhaps the manager was incompetent, or perhaps he is dishonest, as he is described in verse 8. Actually, the word there in the Greek means unrighteous. However, I want us this morning to consider the perspective that this manager was wrongly and unjustly accused. Let's suppose that the word uh, that Jesus uses here in his story, dishonest or unrighteous, is in inverted commas. Let's suppose that he was neither dishonest nor incompetent. But an accusation has been made, we don't know where the accusation has come from, who made it. 
It certainly does not originate from the rich man, his boss. But the boss gets wind of it. We read that the rich man calls the accused manager in and asks him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Now the accusation's been made and it's already been believed. It's taken seriously, so seriously, that the rich man, although he gives the manager opportunity to explain himself, his fate has already been decided. He can no longer be the manager. Though the manager has opportunity to give account of himself, he knows that he is on the way out. And we get a glimpse of the internal wranglings and reasonings. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. He's going to join the ranks of the unemployed. Perhaps the unemployable. He's resigned to termination. This manager knew that the field of work possibilities was not wide open for him. Not strong enough to dig and ashamed to beg. To dig and to beg. These are the first things he thinks of. Digging, begging. One involves digging a hole, the other involves spitting in it. He was at rock bottom. Bottom of the heap. From manager to misery. And he feels weak, ashamed. What a state he is in. I suggest wrongly accused. Losing everything. Weakened. Humbled. Then he has a brainwave. He forms a cunning and crafty plan, it seems. I know what I'll do. That when I lose my job here, no, not if I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. See, faced with losing his job so as to not end up on the street, he goes with what he knows. And I suggest is perhaps very good at debt management. He knows where all the debts are. Could it be that as a good and competent manager, he was managing debts over a longer period to ensure that his master was fully paid. But now he knows he hasn't got much time. So we read that he calls in each one of his master's debtors. And there they are, all lined up, ready one by one to examine the accounts. Perhaps wrangle over or settle the accounts. And just imagine what they must have thought to be hauled in in that instance. Oh no, settling accounts now without warning. They may have felt they were in big trouble now. They may have felt they didn't have what was needed to fully pay. They weren't ready with unpayable debts. And the manager asked the first, how much do you owe my master? You see, the master is owed debts, left, right and centre. There are many debts outstanding. And no doubt these are profitable debts. You see, we're talking about significant profit margins. After all, 
a rich master only has the manager to manage his riches, to make even more riches. 800 gallons of oil, he replies. Well, that's a lot. How is the man to pay such a debt without any notice? No doubt, some or much of that was profit. The manager tells him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Wow, just like that. The debt halves. I'm sure there may still have been a little profit made, but at least he's getting 400 back rather than zero back. Notice the manager doesn't waste any time here. He's not got the luxury of time. Neither actually has the luxury of time, the manager or the one in debt. Take the offer on the table, mate. One time offer. 50% reduction if you sign on the dotted line right now. Deal? We're both winners. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Well, we assume you took the offer. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, who in their right mind would turn down the offer of a reduced or cancelled debt? Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels a week, he replies. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. Notice how taking the bill and altering it is a real and legitimate legal transaction. They had it in writing. They could prove that their debts were reduced or paid in full. Now let's pause here and consider what Jesus is saying. Again, let us ponder who the manager in Jesus' parable might be. I want to suggest that we could think of the manager in Jesus' story as Jesus himself. He has all the riches of the rich man at his disposal. What if the rich master is God, his father? What if the riches of God are all of his abundant graces? The wheat flour of his word, the the oil of the spirit's powerfully worth generously given. God's generosity of mercy and love and forgiveness and healing and deliverance and wisdom and teaching and and laws to name but a few. What if Jesus is the one who is unjustly, unfairly, incorrectly accused? He's actually managing his master's riches well. Yet there are those who are jealous of him. What if Jesus is entirely innocent of the charges levelled against him, yet is about to get booted out. What if time is running short? Things are coming to a head, and quickly. What if the one making the accusation against Jesus of being wasteful with the graces of God are the religious leaders of his day. Those who were jealous of him. Those who wanted him out of the way. Those who accused him 
of being unrighteous, not right with God. In fact, against God. Dishonest, uh, mishandling the word of truth, the scriptures. Even in league with the devil himself, driving out demons by Beelzebub, they say. A friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. We read in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. See, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the elders, the priests, the high priests, all ganging up and in agreement as they accuse and condemn Jesus. You see, they're so tied up with their religious lip service to God, all on the outside, dead on the inside, that they've missed God himself in their midst. They even accuse Jesus of blasphemy. In John chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus asked them, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Referring to himself. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. So they plan and they plot to murder him even paying one of Jesus' own inner circle of disciples to turn traitor. Money, the motivator for the traitor. What if Jesus, as he was about to leave his disciples, was picturing the gracious cancelling of debt in the process of his removal from office? The time was approaching and quickly... Deal with the debt before it's too late. You see, as Jesus tells this parable, and as he goes on with some more explanation, we, he categorizes people into two camps. The people of this world and the people of the light. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. These definitions or descriptions are presented, I would say, as opposites, implying that the people of the world are also the people of darkness, and the people of the light are also the people of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven. What if Jesus is describing here the difference between his disciples who are placing their trust in Jesus for their salvation, that glorious cancelling of unpayable debts between them and those who trust in their own religious works to earn their way into heaven. In fact, we're here then described as those who are confident of their own righteousness, their own self-righteousness, and look down on everybody else. You know, there's only two categories of people in existence, two kinds of people. There are, there are no in-betweens. There are no fence-sitters. 
There are two kingdoms that people can be a part of, one or the other. There are two kings, two masters. The question is, what kingdom are we part of? What master do we serve? Light or darkness? What kind of person are you? Worldly or heavenly? You know, a person can be very religious, yet still be in darkness. Can still be blinded by Satan as an unbeliever, yet still yet to have that veil removed from their mind and heart. Still unable, perhaps unwilling, to embrace Jesus for who he truly is. The only way to the Father. And Jesus presents us with a stark choice. What master are you serving? Which master do you love and which do you hate? Which master are you devoted to and which do you despise? Jesus makes it crystal clear. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But you know, some people try Some people think that they can have one foot in one kingdom and a foot in the other. But Jesus is as clear as clear can be. No one, he says. You see, this is absolute. He doesn't say it is difficult to serve both God and money. Or, uh, and some manage it. He doesn't say you can love money and God equally or you can love God 80% and money 20%. No, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. If you want to be honest with yourself, And see who you truly serve. Look at your bank account. Consider your spending. You see, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. Interestingly, though Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples, he speaks within earshot, I would say deliberately so, of the Pharisees. For in verse 14 which we didn't read this morning, but it goes on to say, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Jesus tells us that worldly wealth is transitory. It's passing. It will one day be gone. Whereas we are made for eternity. He says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. See, all that we have, all that we gain, all that we acquire, that, that we store up for ourselves, cannot be taken with us. You know this. I know this. You know, we may be a king or a queen. We cannot take our diamond tiara, a golden throne, a palace, 
not even a penny with our face on into eternity. You can't do it. Everything has to be left behind, left to another, bequeathed. And even they, though they may benefit from an inheritance of wealth, titles, land, they too must let it go one day. Decide now. Decide today to put your possessions in their proper place in the light of eternity. Do not place your trust in them for they cannot save. And Jesus also goes on to say, for those who have been blessed with earthly possessions and wealth, he tells us that they do have a purpose, but perhaps not what we think they are for. You see, we're tempted in this life to gain and use worldly wealth for our own comfort, enjoyment, pleasure, ease, luxury, and avoidance of pain or hardship. I overheard a man in the street yesterday saying, when I win the lottery, and then proceeded to say what he would do for himself. See, Jesus urges us, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Gain friends for yourselves. See, the manager in the parable, he was not after the money. He was after the people. People are eternal. His eyes were on the prize. People, not possessions. And he uses his master's wealth, God's abundant graces, the, the wealth and possessions that have been entrusted to him for a, a short time to gain friends, to gain relationships. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, verse 15, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. He's entrusted to us. He's given it freely to make of it what we will. Interestingly, Peter uses the same Greek word we have in our parable for manager or steward, as he writes to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards, managers of God's grace in its various forms. So as I've proposed, though wrongly and falsely accused, Jesus is saying that he can be trusted. He demonstrated that he was a trustworthy servant. You see, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. We are also to be honest and useful, not selfish and wasteful managers of God's resources. We read in verse 8 how the master commended the dishonest or unrighteous manager because he had acted Shrewdly. It's a lovely word. The Greek word used here, phronimos, 
means wisely, sensibly, prudently. It actually describes one's inner perspective or personal insight that regulates, that, that brings about your outward behavior. So it begins in here and outworks itself in your life. That's wisdom. You begin in here, your attitudes towards God and towards others. Here is a kind of a sizing things up, being savvy, smart. Let's be those who work with that inner perspective of love that God grants and from that outwork love to others, the various grace and gifts that we have. In fact, Paul, the apostle, writes of Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God, the one who has become for us the wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So I finish by reminding us, I would say that Jesus is asking each one of us, can I trust you with true and eternal riches? Show me what you do with temporary and temporal riches and resources. Because whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest or unrighteous with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? We gather around the Lord's table together. We remember that Jesus gave his life for us, pictured in broken bread and the poured out cup, how he gives up his life and calls us to live lives that are lived for God and for others. Let's sing together, broken for me.
We come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come not because any goodness of our own gives us a right to come, but because we need mercy and help. We come because we love the Lord a little, and would like to love him more. We come because he loved us and gave himself for us. We come and we meet the risen Christ, for we are his body. The psalmist declared, In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. And when we read of Jesus before the authorities, in Matthew 27, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he said, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into the house and eat with them and they with me. Let us pray. Lord, we come to your table trusting in your mercy and not in any goodness of our own. We're not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, but it is your nature always to have mercy and on that we depend. We come as we are we come bringing our need before you, our need for forgiveness of our sins, our need of help, our need of strength, our need of comfort, our need of your presence day by day. We thank you that you meet with us here and that you pour out generously your good gifts. And so we receive your forgiveness and we forgive others who have sinned against us. And we receive your comfort and your strength and your healing and your help. We know your presence with us day by day. Glorify your name, we pray. Minister to each one just as we have need. You know our hearts. You know our lives. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks.
Apostle Paul tells us of the institution of the Lord's Supper and he says, the tradition which I handed on to you came to me from the Lord himself. That on the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in memory of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. So Father, we want to thank you for your provision of this simple meal. We thank you for the bread and the cup. We thank you for symbols of your life and of your death. We bless you and we praise you. We ask that as we share together, that you would minister to each one and that you would refresh us and equip us and embolden us for your service. Amen. So the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had broke, taken it, he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. The, uh, the bread and the cup the bread firstly are going to be passed around. Please take one and eat it as you receive it. Reflect upon uh, Christ's giving of his life for you. The Lord Jesus invites all those who know him, who love him, but also those who desire to know him, those who, who want to invite him into their hearts, perhaps for the first time, to come and share together. And if that's you here today, if you know that today is the day, your salvation, where you've welcomed the Lord Jesus into your life, then uh, speak to me afterwards, and uh, it'd be good to be able to chat and to be able to help you in this new life as you begin. Psalmist says, How can I repay the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call on the Lord by name. I shall pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. As the cups are passed round, please do keep hold of your cup and we will drink together symbolising our oneness in Christ.
drink and we remember that Christ's blood was shed for us and we give him come to our, the end of our time together, we're going to sing our final hymn, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, My Great Redeemer's Praise.
before we uh, say the words of the grace to one another, just a reminder, there's opportunity uh, for folk to join in our Alpha course that's starting this week uh, on Wednesday morning here at the church in the chapel at uh, 10.30. So um, do come along if you're able to, that's during the daytime. Bring a friend as well if they'd like to come and find out more about what the Christian faith is about, who Jesus is, in a way that we can uh, is accessible and enjoyable. So let's say the words of the grace to one another. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 